There was an NBC News article posted in April of 2019 entitled Grand Canyon Deaths After Latest Fall, Tourists Still Drawn to the Edge. Quote, two days after Cynthia Ackley, 69, died from a 200-foot fall from the Grand Canyon South Rim, park visitors still were edging as close as they could get to the open space. Even though the string of deaths has grabbed headlines, the park teemed with visitors who lined up for shuttles to take them to the rim, several of whom left the trail and moved precariously close to drop-offs, usually to get a shocking photo. They interviewed one young man, and he said, It's really tempting because you see the way and you want to go down there and get a better view. One other lady they interviewed who was more cautious, said, I don't think people are thinking about death when they take the pictures on the edge. They think they're making memories, but they're just pictures. You see, when we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 this morning, Paul is going to bring a very somber warning to the Corinthian church and, and to us. And his warning is that our Christian liberty can't be an excuse to get close to the edge. Christian liberty isn't an excuse to get as close to sin as we possibly can. You you see, dead at the bottom of the canyon, that's what you were before Christ saved you. So Christian freedom, freedom in Christ, is not to run over the edge again, back to what you were. Freedom in Christ is to run away from the edge, to run away from sin and temptation, and to get as far away from that as possible. Christian liberty is not an excuse to sin, it's an excuse to run to Christ and to pursue holiness and righteousness. And so for our theme this morning, let's say this way, we must never use our Christian liberty to engage in or associate with sinful practices. We must never use our Christian liberty to engage in or associate with sinful practices. Remember, we've been talking about this concept of Christian liberty, what we're free to do in Christ, and and how that manages itself in situations that aren't clearly defined in Scripture. We saw the language all the way back in chapter 6 when they misunderstood the principle and therefore they were allowing sexual sin in the church. We saw it in chapter 7 when talking about marriage and singleness. You can be married to the glory of God. You can be single to the glory of God. You can choose either one of those. Those are Christian liberty options for you. In chapter 8... Jay walked us through chapter 8, and we started talking formally about Christian liberty and the weaker brother. We can't use our freedom in Christ in such a way that it harms another brother or sister in Christ, where they are tempted to sin or led into sin. Last time in chapter 9, we talked about Christian liberty and the gospel, right? About how Christian liberty is important, and we, we should be able to use it if we need to. But when it comes down to it, there is always something more important than Christian liberty, and it's what? It's the gospel. We always should be willing to give up our Christian liberty for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of others coming to Christ and maturing in Christ. Well, this morning, in the first half of chapter 10, we're going to talk about Christian liberty and our relationship with sin. What does Christian liberty call us to do when it comes to sin and temptation? And then next time, at the end of chapter 10, when we come back in January, we're going to talk about Christian liberty and the glory of God. What, and whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, he says at the end of chapter 10, make sure whatever decision you make, it's always for the glory of God. So, uh, this morning we're going to be in chapter 10, verses 1 to 22. So, let's start, let's read together 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 
starting in verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased for they were laid low in the wilderness Now these things happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved... Flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men. You judge what I say. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Look at the nation Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? What do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I don't want you to become sharers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? We are not stronger than he, are we? We come to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul is going to argue that Christian liberty is no excuse for sin. So our first section, verses 1 to 13, is that Christian liberty is no excuse to engage in sin. Now, really quickly, I'm going to read these first five verses again, okay? For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now, if you've been around the church for a long time, or especially if you've been to Sunday school at some point in your life, you read this and you have two distinct thoughts, okay? Your first thought is something like this. I think I know what he's talking about. This sounds kind of familiar. I think he's referring to some of those Old Testament stories that they had on the flannel graph, right? Okay, so that's your first thought. Your second thought is, if he is talking about the stories that I think he's talking about, he's using some very odd words to describe them. And it's making me think that he's confused or I'm confused or he's talking about something different. Interestingly, both of your thoughts are right, okay? He is referring to Old Testament stories, and he is intentionally describing them with very interesting language so that you start to think about something else, okay? So let's walk through these together. So Paul, through this chapter, is actually going to use a bunch of examples from the Old Testament to remind us of the the truth about the gospel that we have in Christ, okay? So 
The first thing he's going to talk about is three spiritual advantages to remember. Okay, three spiritual advantages to remember. We have spiritual advantages given to us in Christ, but we can see pictures of them in the Old Testament. So number one, our first spiritual advantage we need to remember is our redemption from slavery. So look in verse one. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. I don't want you to be unaware. This is important. You need to know this, that our fathers were under the cloud and passed through the sea. Now, you guys remember the story, right? The cloud, the, the glory cloud of God that came and led them out of Egypt through the Exodus. And it was a pillar of cloud during the day and a pillar of fire by night. And it led them wherever they would go, right? But remember that it led them, the cloud led them up to the Red Sea. And then it stopped. And then there was a problem. Do you remember what the problem was? The sea was in front of them. And what was behind them? The Egyptians, the Pharaoh and his army, right? They were trapped. They were trapped between Pharaoh and the sea. Do you remember what the cloud did? The cloud moved from in front of them around behind them to separate them from Pharaoh and the army so that they were protected. I think that is what he's talking about here. Because while the cloud is there between them and Egypt... Then God commands Moses, Moses lifts his staff and the water parts, right? Exodus 14, 28, the children of Israel walk through and then Pharaoh comes in behind. And verse 28 says, the waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen, even Pharaoh's entire army that had gone in the sea after them. Not even one of them remained, but the sons of Israel walked on dry land through the midst of the sea and the waters were like a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. God sovereignly used the cloud and brought them through the sea. He saved them from Egypt. He brought them out of slavery into the promised land eventually. And I love this, verse 30, when they passed through the sea, it says, Thus the Lord saved Israel. You and I have been saved redeemed from slavery, not from Egypt, but from sin, right? Paul is saying, hey, remember how they were saved from, from slavery in Egypt? You're saved. You, you've been brought through the sea under the cloud because you've been saved from your sin. And now, praise the Lord, you are redeemed. And so the first spiritual advantage we need to remember is that we've been, we've been bought back. We've been saved from slavery to sin. Number two, we need to remember that we have identification with the deliverer. Look at verse 2. It says, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Well, what is he talking about here? Well, baptism, you know, uh, well, it says the cloud. Maybe the cloud sprinkled some water down on them. That's a very Presbyterian version of baptism, right? Or may, maybe in the sea, maybe a little bit of water kind of immersed them as they came out. That's the Baptist view of, of baptism here in the verse. Just so you know, neither of those are actually in this verse, okay? But what is baptism? We always think of the water baptism, right? Of Tom putting someone under and bringing them back up. But, but at its heart, what is baptism? It's identification. It's saying, I am one with Christ and, and I'm one with his church, with his people. It's identification with the one who saved us. And so here he says it's like they were baptized into Moses. At the end of Exodus 14, after that story about them coming through the sea, it says the Israel saw the great power of the Lord, they feared the Lord, and listen to this, they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. What, did they believe in Moses like he was their, their spiritual savior from sin? No. They believed in Moses that he was the deliverer. He was the one God had chosen to lead them out. He, they, were, they were with Moses, whether they liked it or not, right? 
They had a deliverer. God gave them a deliverer. Well, for you and me, have we been saved from Egypt by Moses? No. Have we been saved from slavery to sin by Jesus? Yeah. Romans chapter 6, right? We are baptized into Christ Jesus, baptized into his death. Galatians 3.27, you are baptized into Christ and have clothed yourselves with Christ. We have a deliverer, just like they had Moses. We, we have Jesus. And number three, another advantage we need to remember is that we have a source of nourishment. Verse three, it says they all ate the same spiritual food. Well, we're thinking about the Exodus, the Israelites coming out, and it says food, which means, what are we thinking about? The manna, right? Exodus chapter 16, the Lord said to Moses, I will rain bread from heaven for you. Exodus chapter 16, verse 15. Oh, this one's actually really funny. Exodus 16, 15. When the sons of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? For they didn't know what it was. And Moses said to them, it is the bread which the Lord's given you to eat. In verse 31, they named it manna and it tasted like wafers with honey. Verse 35, they ate the manna for 40 years. So the question is for you and me, did God send bread out of heaven for us? Yes, he did. John chapter 6, right? Verse 31, our fathers ate the man in the wilderness as it's written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it's not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven. It is my father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life, right? In the same way that God sovereignly provided them bread in the wilderness, God has sovereignly provided spiritual nourishment for you and me. In verse 4, he says, They all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them. Again, we're in Exodus, and we're thinking of, of water and rocks, which makes us think of what? Exodus chapter 17, God tells Moses to strike the rock, and what comes out? Water. And then we also think about Numbers chapter 20, because that's at the end of the wilderness journey, and God tells Moses to speak to the rock, and what does Moses do? He strikes it. How many times does he strike it? Twice. Why? Because the first time he struck it, it didn't work for God to prove to him, hey, I told you to speak, right? And God gets angry at him because he didn't believe his word. But we see, okay, well, they had the rock with water come out of it at the beginning when they first left Egypt. They also had a rock that had water come out of it at the end of the journey, and so this is interesting. Track with me for a minute. Some of the rabbis, there was a Jewish legend that the rock was the same rock and it rolled around behind them in the wilderness. I'm not joking. This is real. Okay? That that rock, it followed them like the, the pillar of cloud led them and the rock followed them through the wilderness. Whenever they needed water, it was, it was there to give them water. Well, is that in the text? The answer is no, that's, that's not true at all. What's the point? Well, the point is that the rock was Christ. A, a, a rock? No, spiritual drink. They're drinking from Christ. What, Christ is the one who provided for them. Whatever they needed in the wilderness, food and water and, and their feet not wearing out. What was it? It was the Christ, God, the God of eternity was there caring for his people all the way through the wilderness. And guess what? You and me, we have spiritual nourishment in Christ. God cares and provides for us everything that we need spiritually. You remember the the idea of water from a rock in John chapter 4, right? Jesus goes and he interacts with the woman at the well. 
He says, give me a drink. And she says, no, you're a Jew. Stop this. And he says, if you knew who you were talking to, you would ask and I would give you water. I'd give you living water. And she says, well, the well is really deep and you have nothing to draw with. So where do you think you're getting this living water? And Jesus answered and says to her, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. You see, Christ gives us spiritual nourishment. He is the bread of life. He is the living water. He's everything that we need. Just how God provided them manna and water in the wilderness, he provided everything we need. In Nehemiah chapter 9, when the Levites stand up to pray, they, they pray and they say this in kind of a summary. Interesting, 9, 19 to 20. You, God, in your great compassion did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud did not leave them by day to guide them on their way, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way in which they were to go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. Your manna you did not withhold from their mouth, and you gave them water for their thirst. God provided everything they needed. But look at verse 5. Nevertheless, this, this is the strongest adversative we, ca- we have. Nevertheless, and then the next word in Greek is not. Nevertheless, not pleased was he with them. With most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. In Psalm 78, actually write that down. Read Psalm 78 this week. It's a... It's a, a a tale of Israel's history, if you will, but it, it has commentary in the middle. It's really, really helpful. Psalm 78, it talks about all this, the rocks splitting open and having water and all that. And then in verse 17, Psalm 78, 17, it says, Yet they still continued to sin against him, to rebel against the Most High in the desert. Psalm 78, 40, later on there, it says, How often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. They had everything they needed, and they still sinned against God. The Bible Knowledge Commentary says, The Corinthians, so that they might not think God's discipline would be unlikely for a people so blessed as them, Paul cited the illustration of another group of people who were greatly blessed by God, but experienced his severe discipline. We have every spiritual blessing in Christ. We can't let that be an excuse to walk into sin. (laughs) One commentary said, with most of them, God was not well pleased, is a masterful understatement. Do you remember how many of them actually got into the promised land after all this? Two, (laughs) Joshua and Caleb. With most of them, with all of them, minus Joshua and Caleb, God was not well pleased. It says they were laid low in the wilderness. The, the, one commentary transla- translates that the wilderness was strewn with bodies or their corpses littered the desert. Hebrews 3.17 says God was angry with them for 40 years. Was it not for those who sinned whose bodies fell in the wilderness? A warning to us that every spiritual advantage we have, and we have a lot. We've been saved from our sin. We we have spiritual nourishment in Christ. We have a deliverer. And then even for us, we we have Bibles to read in the language we understand, and we have friends and family at church that that love us and want to see us more like Christ, and and we have a pastor who loves to teach us the Word. We, We have every spiritual blessing and advantage that there is. Nevertheless, he was not well pleased with them. 
What we have is no guarantee that we won't sin and we won't bear the consequences of that sin. We have to be careful that we aren't using what we have in Christ as an excuse to walk into sin. Which leads us to his next point here. We have every spiritual advantage and also there's sins that we have to avoid. Four sinful habits to avoid. Verse 6, now these things happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also crave. These, these are examples. This is instruction for us. You should look at this and learn a lesson that we shouldn't crave or, or desire or lust for or hunger for evil things. Matthew Henry in his commentary said this, carnal desires get head by indulgence. That is, that carnal desires get momentum when you give in to them, Okay and therefore should be observed and checked in their first rise. If once they prevail and bear sway in us, we know not whether they will carry us. This caution stands first because carnal appetites indulged are the root and source of much sin. If you give in to sin, it only has reason to come back again and come back again. We have to fight sin at the front. We cannot crave evil things as they also craved. The Bible Knowledge Commentary says the Christian freedom was not meant to lead to self-indulgence. That's not what it's for. Christian freedom is not the freedom to do whatever we want, to walk into sin and self-pleasure. It's not. So what are these habits that we need to avoid? He highlights four of them, and it's an interesting four because they apply both to Old Testament Israel and very clearly to the Corinthian church and very clearly to you and me. Okay, Idolatry. Verse 7, do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it's written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Do you know what story he's referring to here? Anybody remember? The golden calf, right? Exodus chapter 32, where Moses goes up on the mountain. He's gone for too long. He's gone 40 days, six weeks or so. And they say, well, he's gone. We don't know where he went. So Aaron, we need a new plan. We need a new God. We need a new something. And so Aaron, in his foolishness and sin, says, okay, and he makes a molten calf for them, and he says, he tries to marry the two, right? He says, well, this is your God, O Israel, the, the, this old God from Egypt, but, but we'll have a feast to Yahweh in celebration. We'll mix them together. And so it says, Exodus 32, 6, the next day they rose early and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the playing is is later described as sensual dancing, which most likely led to sexual sin, right? And so this idolatry, this worshiping, this idol, this false god, you remember what happened at the end of that story? 3,000 of them were dead. We cannot allow idolatry in our lives. We have to fight against it. And you say, yeah, 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 I don't, I don't have a molten calf in my garage. I understand but you and I both know, you're all mature enough to know that you have idols in your heart. And maybe they're just wrong, evil, sinful things, sexual sin and, and a covetousness for other people's things and, and whatever else. Or maybe it's good things in and of themselves. It's, it's your family and it's your career and, and it's the things that you have and it's some level of relaxation and enjoyment and convenience. Those things aren't bad, but if they're idols for you, if you care about them more than other things, you're in big trouble. Let us not be idolaters as some of them were. So what's the idol you need to flee from? Second sin that we need to fight against and run away from is immorality. See that in verse 8. Nor let us act immorally. 
Or let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. This is referring to Numbers chapter 25, verses 1 to 9, when Israel remained at Shittim, and the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab. For they invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to the gods and joined themselves to Baal of Peor. Remember later in that story, one of the men from Israel takes a Midianite woman and begins to sin in front of everyone until the righteous man comes and puts a spear through them both. And God says he was pleased with him because he was jealous for God's jealousy, right? We cannot act immorally. We've already seen this back in chapter 5 and chapter 6. Flee immorality, chapter 6, verse 18. So the question for you and me is, how do you need to flee from sexual sin? Is it, is it movies you're watching or TV shows or internet you need to unplug? Or is it social media accounts you need to unfollow or block? Or is it friends or coworkers that you need to break off relationships with? Whatever it is, we cannot act immorally. 23,000 people died in a day because of their sin. If you're checking, Numbers 25 says 24,000, but that was all-inclusive, 23,000 the first day. We can't be idolaters. We can't be immoral. We cannot test God. Let's see if I can get this to work. Remember verse 9, testing God, verse, verse 9, nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. This is the idea of putting God to the test or tempting him. You remember Jesus warning Satan about that in Luke chapter 4, verse 12, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. I think in context here with this Christian liberty, he's talking about how we're tempted to push back on God just a little bit. You say I can't do that, but can I do it a little bit? Can, can I push it this far, right? And our kids do this to us, and, and they do it because they're good at it and we're bad at it, right? They push a little bit, a little bit, a little bit, a little bit until, okay, then the hammer drops. Okay, there's the line. You said the line was here, but I actually got all the way up here before I got in trouble, right? Are we testing God? Are we tempting God? He's talking about here in verse 9 about Numbers 21. Remember in verse 5 through 9 where God sent the fiery serpents among them and many died, and Moses had to raise up the bronze serpent. But you remember what their sin was there? Listen to this. The people spoke against God and Moses. That's it. They spoke against God and Moses. Every time God said something, they pushed back. Eh, we don't like that. We don't like that. We don't like that. In this context, remember, this is the one where they say, there's no food. And also, this food is terrible. Choose one, okay? They spoke against God. They pushed back against God. They tested God. Psalm 78, 41. Again and again, they tempted God and pained the Holy One of Israel. So how do you need to stop this in your life? Where are you pushing the limits every time God tells you something and you're convicted in, in your heart and, and you just push just a little bit, just a little bit of pushback. See if you can get a little bit more ground. Maybe in the context of Christian liberty, you're pushing up against your conscience, against what you know is right and wise, and you just keep a little bit, but hey, you haven't gotten in trouble yet. Where are you trying to find the edge of the canyon instead of running away? Number four, we can't sin in grumbling. Verse 10, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now the destroyer is the word used in Exodus 12 for the, the angel that came and and killed during the 10th plague. And he's probably referring to Numbers 16, although 
in many commentators' defense, they grumble a lot in the Old Testament, so there's lots of options here, okay? But probably Numbers chapter 16, verses 41 to 50, because it says, the congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. They grumbled against Moses and Aaron, the leaders that God had given them. Moses and Aaron tell God this, and God says, get away from them that I will consume them instantly. Moses and Aaron rush to prepare incense and make atonement for the people, and they go and stand. Aaron stands between the people and God, and he makes it in time to where only 14,700 of them died from the plague that the angel brought. So where do you need to stop grumbling? What areas of your life are you consistently discontent with? Are you angry with and frustrated, and why isn't God fixing this in my life? Where do you need to change your perspective and not only find contentment, but even joy in the circumstances that God has given you? Where are you questioning God's sovereignty and goodness and wisdom when instead you need to be trusting God with your circumstances? We look at these things and say, yeah, we understand that the Bible says there's sin, but they're not that bad. Grumbling. Well, only 14,700 people died in a day, so do you think God's serious? You've been given everything in Christ, and you're going to use that as an excuse to walk into sin? God will not be pleased. You see these four sins, idolatry, immorality, testing, grumbling, those are obviously things true of Israel in the wilderness, right? Obviously true of the Corinthian church. We've already talked about this idolatry with the meat sacrificed idols and stuff. Talked about the immorality back in chapters 5 and 6. Talked about them testing God and, and grumbling against Paul's leadership. You and I have all sat here for the last few minutes and thought, oh, that's in my life too. Habits that we have to avoid. Their sin and our spiritual liberty, our Christian liberty doesn't give us any excuse for them. And so, Paul comes to the, the application, the, the exhortation. These things in verse 11, they're an example. They were written for our instruction. And so here, we have ex exhortations to heed in verses 12 and 13. Number one, a warning against overconfidence. A warning against overconfidence. Paul says in verse 12, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he doesn't fall. Let him who thinks he stands, the one who thinks he's okay, that he's hanging out by himself and he's, he's all okay, let him take heed or watch out or be careful. Let him look to himself so that he doesn't fall. Same word as back when they fell in the wilderness. They were destroyed. If you think that you're okay, if you think that your spiritual maturity is just rolling and, and man, you're really good. You haven't sinned in like a long time and, and this is actually pretty easy. You are in big trouble. Matthew Henry says, the harm sustained by others should be cautious to us. Listen to this. Others have fallen and so may we. Do not let your own pride and, and your elevated spiritual maturity be the thing that leads you into sin. Don't let it be your excuse. If you think that you're standing on your own, watch out, because the fall is coming. A warning against overconfidence. Number two, an encouragement to endurance. Encouragement to endurance. A familiar verse that we've all read, no, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. 
No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. The temptation or the test hasn't gotten you. It hasn't taken hold of you except what is common, it, what's human. It's normal. You, you are human, therefore you're going to deal with these things. This is both an encouragement and a warning, right? It's an encouragement. It's common. We all deal with these temptations and sins. And so, so we have brothers and sisters to help us with this. It's a warning. <laughs> it's common. And you are human. You will deal with these things. Watch out for them. But notice what he says, that God is faithful. The Lord is faithful. 2 Thessalonians 3.3, 3, the Lord is faithful and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. It says he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. 2 Peter 2.9, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation. It says here, the temptation, with the temptation, God will provide the way of escape also. That's the, that's the, the exit door, the end of the temptation. I love in Daniel chapter 3, verse 17, you remember? They respond to the king and they say, Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. You see what they said? He is able to save us from the fire. And he might. But one way or the other, he will save us from you, O king. How was that going to happen? They were prepared to be saved from the king by going through the fire. Right? For you and me. Sometimes the temptation is a, it's a way of escape. The temptation comes and we pray and it goes away. But he says, so that you will be able to endure it, so that you will bear up under it. You see, sometimes the temptation isn't gone as fast as we want. And sometimes we have to endure it. But notice that God provides for that. He provides for when the temptation doesn't go away as fast as we want. He gives us the ability to endure it. This is really important for us to remember when we're fighting sin. Okay, In your own heart, in your own life, you don't have to sin. <laughs> you don't, right? And here, God has given us the ability to endure or a way out. You see, I feel like in my life, and maybe you're different, but I feel like most of the time when I give in to sin, it's because I have this perspective that it's a lost cause. It, it, the battle's already won, right? Whether I sin right now or in five minutes or 20 minutes, I'm going to give in to that thought. I'm going to give in to saying that word. I'm going to give in to whatever. <laughs> but it's not true. The, it's not inevitable that sin wins in a Christian's life. The battle is not won by sin. The battle is won by Christ. And so you can withstand sin. You can endure it. Well, you can't. But God can in you, right? It can happen. This is really important when we're, we're caring for each other, we're discipling each other and doing counseling together, and, and some, your friend is struggling with something. You need to remind them, hey, if you think you're standing, watch out, because you're going to fall. It's a warning. But remember, you don't have to sin. God has provided a way for you not to do that. This is really important when we're talking to our kids and grandkids, okay? Because what do we always say you know, if they disobey? You did it again. You did it again. You're, ne you're never going to learn, right? But what do we need to remind them? We need to remind them, hey, you need to do this. You, you need to obey. <laughs> and it's hard. It's going to be hard. It's going to be really hard to obey your mom every time. But you can do it. You can. You can't. But God can in you, right? There is a way for you to do this and actually honor God. God has provided for that. God has given you every spiritual blessing in Christ 
not to walk into sin, but so that you can withstand temptation and not sin, right? Christian liberty is not the excuse to sin, it's the excuse not to sin. We need to remind our, our friends and our family and our kids about the gospel, that through the gospel we can actually obey and withstand temptation. So that leads to the second half of the chapter, uh, the second third, I guess. Because now Paul's going to transition. He's going to talk about not engaging in sin ourselves, but what about associating with sin? You know, we talked about last time, we should be able to do whatever we need to do for the sake of the gospel. Where's the line? (laughs) The line is Christian liberty is no excuse to associate with sin. Christian liberty is no excuse to associate with sin. So let's walk through these. There's four arguments here. The first one, Paul gives in verses 14 and 15, the wise Christian will flee any possibility of sin. The wise Christian will flee any possibility of sin. Now look at this, verse 14, therefore. Now this is a unique a word. It's not a normal therefore. It's, a, it's an intensive. Therefore, okay, this is what we know. This is how we're going to respond, okay? Same back in chapter 8 when he said, therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I'll never eat meat again. So with all, this thing, the, all these things that we know, this is the answer. I'm never going to eat meat again. So what's the answer here? What, what if all these things that we know, that we have spiritual advantages in Christ, but, but we're still tempted to sin, well, what's the answer? Here's the answer. Flee from idolatry. You know, you're, you're coming off of verse 13, and you're like, oh, God's going to provide a way of escape. God, God's going to give endurance. I, I can get as close to the edge as I want because I'm in Christ. I can't fall into the canyon. <laughs> he says, the answer is to run. The answer is to run. You run from sin. You flee from idolatry. The answer is not that God will provide a way of escape and so you run as far into sin as you can. The answer is God has provided a way of escape so you run the way he's called us to. We flee, we escape. We've seen this already in chapter six, flee immorality. You remember back when we were in Proverbs and we talked about the the sinful woman, the adulterous woman, right? The the temptress there. And remember what Solomon told his, his boys? Go as close to the house as you can get, right? Walk right up there and see what happens. Is that what he said? No, what did he say? Get away, right? Proverbs 5, 8, do not go near the door of her house. Proverbs 7, 25, don't let your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. Get as far away from sin and temptation as you can. That's the way that God has provided for you. One commentary said, God Paul has just assured them of God's help in time of temptation, but it doesn't give them license to dally needlessly with it. They must flee from it. Verse 15, he says, I speak as to wise men, you judge what I say. Now, Paul has not complimented the Corinthians' wisdom very often, has he? Usually he says, oh, you think you're smart. I think he is kind of saying that, but he's giving them the benefit of the doubt. I think what he's saying is this. If you're as smart as you think you are, If you are really wise, you will listen to what I say. You will judge what I say and you'll know that I'm right. The wise person, the wise Christian will look at this and say, I need to run from sin, not flirt with it, right? So the question is for you and me today. We walk home, you know, we drive home from from church, we get home. At some point later, five minutes, whenever, you're going to be confronted with a temptation to sin, to anger, to lust, to laziness, to something, Okay. How are you going to respond to that? Is your first reaction when you're tempted to sin to flee, to run away from the edge as far as you can? Or is it to stay a while? 
to sit with that for a while, to think about it, to flirt with that sin, or is it to flee from it? You see, Paul's point is is that our Christian liberty is not an excuse to, to get our money's worth, right? Christian liberty is our excuse to run away from sin, away from the edge of the cliff, as far as we can, if we want to be wise Christians. So the second argument that he has here, there's kind of two that go together, okay? The next one, the second one, is this. The Lord's table is an act of fellowship with Christ and his people. Now, why is he bringing this up? Well, it's going to come clear in just a minute. We're getting back into this conversation about food sacrifice to idols, okay? These pagan feasts that they're involved with. Can, can you be involved in that or not? Can you associate with this sin or not? Well, his first argument, verses 16 and 17, is that the Lord's table is an act of fellowship with Christ and his people. So, verse 16, the cup of blessing which we bless, is that not a sharing in the blood of Christ? The bread which we break is a sharing in the body of Christ. You see, the cup of blessing, that's the third cup of the Passover meal that Jesus took. Remember, we studied in Mark where he took that third cup and said, this is the covenant, new covenant in my blood, okay? And so here we have a clear picture of the Lord's table, communion, what we celebrate, right? So he says, when we do this, you are sharing. That's the word, you guys know this one, koinonia. It's fellowship. It's a common participation together. When you take this cup, when you break the bread together, you are sharing, you have fellowship with Christ, and then you notice with his blood and his body. That's his life and death, his resurrection, all of what Christ has done for you, and because of that, with his people. We see that in verse 17. There's one bread. We who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. See, when you come, the Lord's table, taking communion is not an individual thing, (laughs) The Lord's table, when you come and take communion together, you are making a very strong political statement that I am with Christ and I'm with all the other people who are with Christ too. That's what you're saying. When you come and you take the Lord's table, you have fellowship with one another. We who are many are one body. Why? Because we all have a share. We all partake of the same thing. We'll talk more about that in chapter 11 and chapter 12 when we really deal with the Lord's table. So the question is, this is an easy application, is are you fellowshipping with the other believers in Christ that you know, and are you doing that by taking the Lord's table together? Okay, Here, when we celebrate the Lord's table, do you happen to always miss the day that we do communion or not? When we take it, do you understand that you are fellowshipping with Christ, you are remembering and proclaiming what he's done, we'll see that in chapter 11, and recognizing that you are fellowshipping with him and with his people. You see, the fact that we do that is a statement that we're together means something. (laughs) And if that's true, and we know that it is, then the second thing is true also. And that is that the pagan feasts are an act of fellowship with sin and demons. You see, if the Lord's table is our act of fellowship together, then these pagan feasts that you're going to in the idol temples are an act of fellowship with sin and demons. Verse 18, look at the nation Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? He's referring back to Leviticus and Deuteronomy. When you would come and bring your sacrifice, you would offer it, and then you would stay and you would eat part of the sacrifice with the priests and Levites that were there and with your family. It was a sharing. You were, you were communicating by doing that, that you were involved and fellowshipping with what was happening at the altar. Okay? And he says, we know that's true. Look at verse 19. What do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? He's <laughs> like, now, you're missing the point again, right? No, the idol, the idol is nothing. The idol is a piece of wood or stone. It's, it's a hunk of something. It's nothing. 
the, the food is it's just meat, it's nothing. The idol, the thing sacrificed, it, it's nothing. But verse 20, but I say that the thing which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. We know this is true from the Old Testament, Leviticus 17, 7. They shall no longer sacrifice their sacrifices to the goat demons with which they play the harlot. Deuteronomy 32, 17, they sacrifice to demons who were not God. Listen to this, to gods whom they have not known, new gods who came lately, whom your fathers didn't dread. How do you know they're false gods? Because they just showed up on the scene. Clearly, they weren't the ones that created the world. They're demons. They're not, they're not other gods. They're false idols energized by demons. Psalm 106, verses 34 to 37. They did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them, but they mingled with the nations and learned of their practices, and they served their idols, and they even sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. And Paul says, I don't want you to become sharers to have fellowship with demons. You can't do it. You cannot, verse 21, here's the point. You cannot, and this is, this is a strong, this is a word of capacity, of ability. You are not able, you, you do not have the capacity to drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot, it is not possible for you to partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Why? Because 2 Corinthians chapter 6, what partnership has righteousness and lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What harmony has Christ with Belial? You cannot, it is not possible for you to have fellowship with Christ and his people and have fellowship with sin and demons and both to be true. It can't happen. You understand? One necessarily excludes the other. But, but, but it, it's the meat. It's, is the meat the problem? No, the meat's not the problem. The meat is nothing. It's the fact that you're participating in demonic idol worship when you're going to do these things. One commentary says, the issue is not the food, but association with spiritual powers opposed to God. So here's the question for you and me. Where in your life have you pushed your Christian liberty to the edge and over the edge to where you know in your conscience, in your heart, that you are associating yourself with sinful things, sinful people, sinful practices, and thinking that you're okay. Because you can't have fellowship with light and darkness. You get one or the other. If we are the ones who take the Lord's table together as an act of fellowship with Christ, and we're going to stand up here in front of all our Christian friends and say, yeah, I'm taking this, I'm one of you, I'm a Christian, and the rest of the week, I'm going to go and I'm going to do whatever the modern version of is worship demonic idols with all of my sinner friends. You can't get both. One of them is a flat-out lie. And by the way, if you're doing both, it's the one with Christ. <laughs> you see, you can't associate and participate with sin. There's no excuse. Gordon Fee, one of the commentators, says this, sitting at the table, talking about the Lord's table, Sitting at the Lord's table and experiencing its benefits of grace and freedom does not give one license for moral licentiousness. 
Rather, celebrating the table together, rather, it binds us to one another in common fellowship around Christ and the new covenant in such a way that our behavior in the new age is radicalized toward the law of Christ. Taking the Lord's table together, participating and fellowshipping with other believers calls us to be holy like Christ is holy. That's what it does. It doesn't give us an excuse to go do whatever we want and whatever sin we want. It gives us an excuse to pursue Christ together. That's the point. And so we come to verse 22. The fourth reason why, why Paul knows that this liberty is no excuse to associate with sin is because it provokes the Lord to anger. The intentional association with sin provokes the Lord to anger. He says, or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? He, the idea is, you know, I thought you had questions and you were just confused on this, but, but maybe you're not confused. Maybe you really are trying to get the best of both worlds. Maybe you're really trying to have your cake and eat it too. Maybe you're trying to pretend to be a Christian and still get all your sin in. And he says, if that's true, if that's what you're trying to do, you are poking God in the eye. You are provoking him to jealousy. Deuteronomy 32.16 says they made him jealous with strange gods and with abominations they provoked him to anger. You remember Exodus 20. This is the, uh, the Ten Commandments, right? Verse 4, he says, you shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness. Why? Because verse 5, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. God knows that he is the only one worthy of all the glory in the universe. God knows that. And therefore, he lives by that. God is a jealous God, and he will not let his glory go to another. He will not be mocked by you saying you're a Christian and living like a pagan. He won't. You are provoking the Lord to jealousy, and God's patience only lasts so long. And so Paul says, we're not stronger than he, are we? Maybe you knew all this before I told you, and maybe you I know that you're provoking God to jealousy, and maybe you just think you're big enough. He says, we're not stronger than him, are we? Job 9.4, who has defied him without harm? Or Isaiah 45.9, woe to the one who quarrels with his maker. You think you're big enough? To provoke God to anger? Good luck. Matthew Henry, shall we rouse almighty wrath? How shall we withstand it? Are we a match for God? Can we resist his power or control it? And if not, shall we arm it against us by provoking him to jealousy? No, let us fear his power and let this restrain us from all provocation. You get what he's saying? If you understood how big and strong God was, you would stop sinning right now. You wouldn't look at God's power and say, I'm probably okay. So the question for you and me is, are we provoking the Lord to anger by being this hypocritical person who, who pretends to be a Christian? We take the, the Lord's table with our, our friends at church. And we also go and we participate in all the old sinful practices. God says, you don't get both. And trying to get both provokes me to anger. Are you and me, are we teasing and prodding God with our flippancy toward our sin? We can't do it. Paul says our Christian liberty is not an excuse. 
It's not an excuse to engage in sin. It's not an excuse to associate with sin. You say, yeah, okay, I went to the idol, the, to the temple, and I ate the food, but, but I wasn't really, like, I didn't mean it, you know? Let's pretend for just a moment that someday Christianity, worshiping Jesus, is illegal in America, okay? And the police catch you, which is good because you were worshiping Jesus, okay? And they catch you, and they take you in, and they say, we know that you're a Christian, you worship Jesus, we're going to get you in trouble for that. And your defense to them is, well, yeah, I, I know that you caught me reading my Bible and, and singing praises to God and praying and, and all that with, with other people that, that are Christians, but, but just so you know, I wasn't really doing it. I, my heart wasn't in it, so we're okay. I wasn't really worshiping Jesus. First of all, that's a problem. Don't do that. Secondly, you know what they're going to say? Sure looked like you were doing it. Take that the other way. You go and you live like a sinful pagan all week. And you come to God and you say, you know, God, I, I didn't really mean it. Oh, my heart wasn't really in it. I was just doing that stuff. But, but here, I'm with you. God says, it sure looked like you were doing it. Paul says, you can't go into these idols' temples and do this whole I, demonic idol-worshiping service, participate in everything they have to offer, and then say, oh, no, 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 we're with Christ. You don't get both. Christian liberty is no excuse for sin. It's no excuse to associate with sin. Christian liberty is not the thing that drives us to the edge of the cliff. <laughs> Christian liberty isn't a rope that's going to keep us safe if we get really close to sin. Dead at the bottom of the cliff is what you were before Christ found you. Christian liberty, freedom in Christ, every spiritual advantage and blessing you have in Christ is for you to run away from the cliff up the mountain, to Christ, to Christ's likeness, to holiness, to righteousness, right? And we'll see at the end of the chapter in, in January when we come back, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. What is Christian liberty? It's the opportunity to share the gospel with people to the glory of God at your expense because it's worth spending and expending ourselves for others, for the gospel and for God's glory. Not an excuse to sin or even associate with sin. It's an excuse to be like Christ, excuse to not sin, right? All right, let's pray. God, thank you for your word and thank you for the reminder that we have that we are not free to toy and flirt with sin. We are free to be holy. We are free to be slaves to Christ in every aspect of our lives. Pray that you would convict us in our hearts of the things we need to change, of the things we need to run away from, that we would run to Christ, that we would be holy in thought and behavior because we want to honor you and we want to give you glory in everything. Pray all this in the name of our Lord. Amen.